You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new film, The Cool School, our guest today, Emmy Award-winning director Morgan Neville, chronicles the life of the Ferris Gallery, which from 1957 to 1966 was the catalyst of modern art in Los Angeles. Operating out of a small storefront, the gallery hosted debut exhibitions and served as a general launching point for Ed Keenholz, Ed Ruscha, Craig Kaufman, Wallace Berman, Ed Moses, and Robert Irwin, also playing a role in solidifying the careers of many of New York's brightest talents, including Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol, Donald Judd, Frank Stella, Robert Rauschenberg, and Jasper Johns. Neville is an award-winning documentary filmmaker who specializes in history and cultural subjects. The Cool School will air on KCET's Independent Lens this Wednesday, June 11th at 8 p.m. Morgan Neville, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me. Now, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. You must be pretty excited with the showing of your film tomorrow night on PBS. How did that work for you? Uh, it worked great. I mean, for an art documentary like this, there are only so many places. And PBS, I knew from the beginning, was the perfect home for it. And they, they helped me make it, too. Yeah. It was important to me that this film get out there across the country, that everybody see it, mm-hmm. that this isn't just a regional story, that talking about what happened in L.A., in the 60s in the art world is really a art history story. It's a story everybody needs to know, especially people on the East Coast and other uh, you know, so-called arbiters of culture. Yeah, back in their face. Yeah. When did you first hear about the Ferris Gallery? What brought you into the story? I, you know, it's the kind of thing I'd heard mentioned. It's kind of legendary in art circles. And I'm a you know, documentary filmmaker. I don't come from an art background, though I'm a, a fan and I had done work on the L.A. County Museum's Made in California show in 2000. Okay. That's really when I started thinking about it. And when I finally heard Walter Hopps speak at the Getty in around 2001, I just assumed the story had been told. I assumed somebody had made a documentary about this legendary gallery. And when nobody had, I said, well, I, I have to do it. Uh, now, now, there's footage of Hopps at the very end shot, I think it was 12 days before he died. Yeah, that's true, at the Santa Monica Museum. Yes, were you taking that footage? Yeah. That must have been quite a point in your uh, your life there, to have, you know, be revisiting him, and then to have probably some of the last footage of Walter Hopps. Talk a little bit about him and what he brought to uh, culture in L.A. You can't say enough about what Walter did for the arts in Los Angeles. He's an incredibly interesting character. Uh, he grew up in Eagle Rock. He went to Stanford and was kicked out for running an underground magazine. He ended up going to UCLA, where... He did pre-med because that was kind of the family's expectation of him. But what he really loved was jazz and art. So he started promoting jazz concerts, and he started opening little art galleries. You know, this is all part of a big avant-garde movement. He saw it all as connected, the jazz and the art together. And he was kind of the the straight man. I mean, he, as we say in the film, he looked like a CIA agent. He always had a little skinny black tie and a suit on and black glasses and... You know, everybody was saying, well, who, who is this guy? And he said, well, this is, you know, this is kind of my costume to, to speak to the outside world for all of these wily and crazy beatnik characters that he was representing. Yeah, yeah, yeah he definitely, he, he seemed to be the, the visionary. Talk a little bit about uh, gathering these artists together at the Ferris under Walter's tutelage and what happened subsequently when he went to the Pasadena Museum as well. Well, you know, by opening the Ferris, 
with that Keenholz, you know, originally and then later running it with Irving Blum. And what it did, it's not that it was the only thing going on in the art world in L.A., but it was it provided a, a nexus. So suddenly the artists living in the canyons of Topanga or Hollywood or in Echo Park or in the beach cities of Huntington or Venice finally could find each other and say, okay, it's, it's a clubhouse. You know, we, have, we all are on the same wavelength here. And, you know, Walter had a plan for bringing art to L.A., a five-point plan, that a city to have an art scene, it has to have artists, it has to have galleries, it has to have museums, it has to have publications to celebrate it, and it has to have collectors. And he worked on all those fronts. He taught young rich couples that knew nothing about art how to appreciate modern art and buy it. And then finally, by going to the Pasadena Museum of Art, which became the Norton Simon, he started doing really avant-garde and groundbreaking shows. You know, the first pop art show in a museum ever was in Pasadena in 1962, which doesn't get enough credit. He did that at Marcel Duchamp's first retrospective ever. I mean, really incredible historical shows. It basically shamed the rest of the museums in the city to doing more modern work. We were making the point earlier that uh, the Duchamp retrospective was a real landmark uh, in terms of an exhibition it, for the country in some ways. Absolutely. I mean, internationally. Yes. You know, in, in a way, Duchamp was the patron saint of the, the L.A. scene. And what's so interesting is Duchamp had an L.A. connection that his main collectors, the Ahrensburgs, were a wealthy Hollywood family. Mm-hmm. And Walter, as a high schooler, had met Duchamp in last trip he took to the Ahrensburg's okay. house. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was connected to Duchamp mentally from the time he was 17. And what's so interesting is he brought Duchamp back long after the Ensbergs had passed, and, and their collection couldn't find a home in L.A. Nobody in L.A. wanted Duchamp's collection. So it ended up at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where it is now, famously. Wow. Now, on the other hand, the partner he has is Irving Blum, who is probably the exact opposite of what Hobbes is. And from what I can tell, he's more into promotion than he is into art which is probably one of the reasons why he uh, was attracted to Andy Warhol. Irving certainly had an eye, and I don't want to say that he was just the business guy, but you know, he respected the... Uh, he had a hard, hard edge eye. He liked pop art. He understood the New York artists in a way, and he understood how to sell it. You know, compared to Walter, who was kind of the, the romantic artist at heart, Irving may come off a little poor by comparison, but really Irving's, Irving is the modern art gallery owner. I mean, he, he established what it is to be a gallery owner today. Today, you have to be like Irving Blum to, to run a gallery, because it is a business. Yeah. And to me, what was so interesting is that at the center of the art world, you have this kind of oxymoron. You know, you're trying to be creative and foster creativity and support artists, and you're trying to make money. And those two things are at odds. And in Walter and Irving, you feel that tension all the way through. So you had this yin and yang, and how long did that relationship last? Well, it lasted for about three and a half, four years maybe, mm-hmm. before Walter ended up going on to the, um, the Pasadena Museum. And I guess it's not giving too much away to say that they were married to the same woman, too, which only complicated matters. Now, of all the people that you did interview, did you have, was there any contention there? Because here we have two guys married to the same women. There, there's obviously a lot of disagreements along the way. Was there any tough points between any of the uh, uh, players in this? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of hard feelings. And, you know, just by telling the story, I was going to wade into that. Maybe people on one side or the other felt that we should have been more generous or kinder to them or whatever. I tried to give a really balanced portrait. Yeah. And if there's something in there, it's generally done in the person's own voice. And, you know, the, I guess the, the thing that's made me feel best is, to a man, 
since they're all men, the artists in the film have all really said that we we nailed it as much as one could. Oh, good. Well, I want to ask you under the, because you had these two di- very different personalities in in running the Ferris. Did the artist feel an affinity for one or or the other? Did, did it create any kind of tension within the artists who were doing their work? I think the artists were all kind of on the same wavelength with each other. Okay. Uh, I think that you know they all had a soft spot for Walter because you know you you have to have a soft spot for somebody who is so unaware of worldly things and only cares about the creative. And at the same time, you know, a lot of them wouldn't be famous artists today if it wasn't for Irving. And I think they appreciate that because they're realists, too. But what's so interesting about this group of artists, too, I mean, as I said, they're on the same wavelength, and they were a close-knit group of hard-drinking alpha males that would hang out at Barney's Beanery and chase women. And as much as they were all on the same wavelength in terms of their social life, their art, was all very different, and they were. There's a lot of competition that we talk about in the documentary yeah. that they were spurring each other on, but it was important in that scene not to mimic any of the other artists. So even though they were completely inspiring each other on a maybe an emotional level and a creative level, it wasn't on an aesthetic level because their aesthetics were going in so many different directions. We're speaking with Morgan Neville. He's director of The Cool School, which will air on KCET's Independent Lens this Wednesday, June 11th at 8 p.m. And I believe there's a number of showings after that, too. So you've, you've got a, a lot going on this week as far as uh, screening goes. Now, in making this film, you did a lot of nice work with graphics. Uh, is that Helvetica you use? Uh, it's not, actually. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did see the Helvetica documentary. But... Uh, Avenir? <laughs> No, you know, the graphics were an important part of it because you're trying to convey the energy of a scene. And, you know, we did find a lot of footage, but there were also a lot of great photographs. And you just wanted to come alive. Well, the the way you draw the lines across it reminded me of old Blue Note uh, album covers. And that's absolutely the aesthetic we were going for. I mean, all these guys came out of that jazz background. Yeah, Yeah, that opening. opening. And there's a lot of of rough edges, too, in the editing, which is nice. There's, like, overexposures to the film itself. And it's a real nice job on the editing. Did you have any trouble getting hold of all the the footage? We spent four and a half years making the documentary. So, you know, we turned over every stone we could possibly turn over. I think it was the advantage of spending so long making the film that things kept turning up. You know, if we had made the film quickly, we would have missed a lot of stuff. And there was one story, for instance, that uh, I got a call from a friend of a friend who had bought out a storage locker that was being auctioned off and had found some film cans that said Rusher on them. And he <laughs> called and said, you know, would your friend be interested in these? Oh. I hopped in the car and drove over as quickly as I could. Oh, and there are these amazing home movies of Ed Richet working in his studio, which were, you know, destined for the garbage bin and are now in the film. Well, you know, right. talking about serendipity, the fact that it was available, that somebody knew that you were doing this, so that's that's remarkable. Exactly. I, I spread the word everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I especially like the footage, too, of the L.A. Times critic back in uh, oh, yeah. talking about Keenholz's exposition. Ex- <laughs> yeah, yeah, the art critic there, Henry Seldes. Yeah. yeah. It, you realize that, uh, you know, not only do these artists have a hard time being accepted in New York, but a lot of the resistance to them was right here in L.A. Yeah, yeah. definitely. They came, they came across as a... 
your your pompous windbag, as they like to say. Anyway, well, well, it, he didn't know any better. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I'm sure it was. Well, to a lot of people, this was just you know, I'm sure they saw it as something uh, of an aberration in the art scene. But uh, that was exciting going back to the Keenholz uh, period too at the at the LA Museum. Was that footage hard to get hold of? It wasn't too hard. I'd heard about it, and the Keenholz estate had it, and it's just amazing stuff to see people reacting well this is a a a really very good documentary and i I like the stuff with warhol him getting his first real showing uh here at the ferris gallery in in los angeles of all places it does a great job of pulling together all these elements and and shows you what was going on here in, in los angeles that a lot of people had no idea was actually happening Exactly. It's on PBS in this slightly abridged form, but if you're really interested, uh, the DVD's coming out <laughs> July 29th with a lot of extras oh, for excellent. people really interested in the scene. Well, so. that's great to hear. So this July 29th, you said, for the DVD? Yeah. Very good. The film is The Cool School. It airs tomorrow night on PBS through the Independent Lens series. Always a terrific series. Uh, Morgan Neville, thank you for being here on Film School. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.